Our Father, so often we see around us, particularly even in the professing church, that your love is presented as something sentimental. It lacks the holiness and the transcendence that your word presents to us, ultimately even in Christ. And yet, O oh God, understood rightly, your love is at the very foundation of our life. To understand the eternal love that was the very motivation and the very glory that you put on display with every other glory in the redemption of a people for your own name and for your own joy and for the glory of Christ and for our happiness and for our benefit, such that Paul could say that all eternity, because of your great love, you will lavish the riches of your kindness on us in Christ Jesus. We who were dead in trespasses and sin and whom you, by grace, made alive through Christ. It is your love that Paul said as he prayed for the Ephesians that he longed for them to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth so that in knowing the fullness of your love we might be filled up to the fullness of God and being filled up to your fullness we might demonstrate your life and in demonstrating your life we might bring you eternal glory in Christ. So we do pray, O oh Father, that you would increase our understanding of these things and it is in that understanding that we are strengthened to live a life of faith and courage, to battle daily indwelling sin and pursue always our great hope in Christ. So to that end, may you encourage our hearts as we look at your word together and ultimately as we participate together in remembering your great grace to us, your presence even now among us, and your future return in the table. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray, amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. But before we begin, of course, I want to say, as Jim did earlier, uh, happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers who are here, the ones who were able to make it today. Um, God knew what he was doing in making women mothers because uh, they do a much better job at it than uh, men. There is a gendered design uh, that God has uniquely gifted women to have the characteristics and the qualities to, to display the tenderness, the wisdom, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the patience, and the care for children that uh, us as fathers often need to learn from as we observe them. And so we are, thank God for mothers. And you know, it has often been observed, and it's, and it's true, uh, that you don't ever see generally, you know, these big tough athletes uh, uh, when they're thanking someone, thanking their dads or even their parents so much, but they thank their moms because those are so often the greatest influence in our lives. And so we praise God for you. Uh, but we are going to look this morning at, again, we are Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 10 as we're making our way and coming near to the end of the book. We find ourselves once again back in chapter 10 where we left off last week. And I'm going to introduce it simply by saying that we're going to make some observations here regarding foolishness and wisdom. That is the, the contrast to throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is, of course, one of the, the uh, great uh, marks or the characteristics of Solomon and what he is known for throughout Scripture. And so he puts that on full display here in chapter 10. Now, the context generally, of, context generally of chapter 10 is wisdom and foolishness in places of authority, of political power, of civil authority. It's like the idea here, the imagery is of the royal court and how foolishness and wisdom has massive influence by those who hold power over a people. 
And so that is the context here. And yet the principles that should guide our leaders, the principle that should guide those in power are the same principles that work consistently in every aspect of life as we live in God's moral universe. And so there is certainly application to us as well as also a warning to us about those we allow, particularly in our culture, to have that kind of power and influence over us. So let me read... Our passage this morning, so Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 4, we'll read through chapter 20. Uh, We'll try to, well, just read with me. Ecclesiastes 10. You know, actually, let's begin in verse 1. It's a longer section, but let's begin in verse 1 for context. So we'll read Ecclesiastes 10, verse 1 down through verse 20. It says, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. And even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is said in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success." If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his, taking, of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet, the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. And woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creatures will make the matter known. And so it is the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there is, of course, a theme that runs through this, and it is that of wisdom and foolishness and its influence from the political realm over a, over a people. Ultimately, of course, as Solomon has made the case under the providence of God, under the sovereignty of God. And yet, nonetheless, we as those who live in a world in which God has established authority and governing authority are subject to those who rule over us. And it is our hope that we have wise rulers, but too often we have foolish rulers. So we're going to break this down in two simple points. first one is uh, wisdom and foolishness contrasted. And we'll note several observations that Paul, uh, Paul that the Solomon makes uh, here in uh, chapter 10. And then the second point, which is the end, which will be briefer, is our hope. Is our hope. 
that he points us to. So let's notice then foolishness and wisdom contrasted. Look back at verse 4, which is where we left off last week, and note this first observation. Namely, that he says, keep your composure and conviction in the presence of a fool. He notes that wisdom keeps its composure, maintains its conviction in the presence of a fool. He says in verse 4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure lays great offenses. In other words, keep your cool. In the presence of the ruler, trust in God's providence. Display God's character. This is wisdom. Not to be rattled, not to be thrown off, not to be flustered, not to be flabbergasted, and to lose your composure. This, in fact, will only destroy your cause and play into the hand of the the foolish ruler. He has already reminded us back in chapter 8, as we've looked at before, that we are not to openly resist a ruler's command, that we are not to respond hastily to even the foolish order of a king or a governor, etc. He had said, by way of reminder, he says, Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, do not, who will say to him, What are you doing? In other words, be wise when you're in the presence of one who has authority. And here... That wisdom is, don't join in some kind of resistance, but keep your composure. Keep your wits about you, as it were. The way of the wisdom, then, is to maintain the balance between this conviction and composure. And he says, do not abandon your position. Again, hold firm. Make the case. Seek to move things toward the right, not in anger, but in the certainty of your cause, in the certainty of the rightness of your cause and of your argument. Hold firm. Paraphrased, you could say it like this. Stay in the conflict. Stay in the situation. Do not give in to the other person's anger or leave the situation that needs the influence of wisdom, that needs and requires the influence of wisdom. Uh, Earlier, Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 25, 15, by forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded. In other words, by consistency, by a patient endurance. A ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Now, there's many positive examples of this as it's worked out in, the, in high places. There's examples in history, and there's examples certainly in the pages of Scripture. We, we think of many of them. Daniel, of course, always rises to the top. He is the quintessential example of the wisdom of God's people living under the rule of a wicked king and those who do not acknowledge God. His whole life was one who showed that he was a man of integrity, who held to his convictions, and in every situation, whether it be in a lion's den, whether it be before a a mad, angry king who saw writing on the wall, or whether it be an egomaniac king who builds a statue to himself, in every case, he maintained his convictions, and he upheld his composure, and had great influence in that type of situation. Even though these were all wicked kings, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are an example of that. As you remember, they stood before a maniacal king before the pit of fire or furnace of fire, as it were, ready to be thrown in because they would not bow the knee to his evil commands. And yet they did not do it in anger. They did not do it in hostility or even mockery. They maintained their conviction and their composure. They spoke soberly the truth and they glorified God. And there's many, many other examples that we could give of this. That certainly is necessary for those who find themselves in the presence of authority, in the presence of an earthly kind of power. 
But again, as this principle is said in the royal court, it applies to all of life situations in which we are confronted with an angry person. And some of you might experience this kind of situation in the workplace, being confronted with an angry boss. Sometimes we can experience this in the home with an angry child or an angry spouse. There are all kinds of situations where we are confronted with those who lack self-control and those who are quick to expose their anger. Well, again, this is in the, in the ruler's court. I think what particularly rose to my mind, and as we see even more so in our own experience looming in us, is the composure that is necessary of God's people in the face of the opposition. No, we don't sit in a king's court, and no, not necessarily in a political office, but definitely as we are called upon to be a witness to Christ with greater and greater pressure from the culture and the society around us sometimes even from our very own leaders. And there is a sense in which we need this same reminder for us just to live in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards the truth. Uh, this is a side thing. I'll give some other examples. But somebody sent, uh, after hearing uh, Angelisa's, whatever she is, her testimony last week, uh, uh, a blog from a missionary. I believe it was in Romania. I could be wrong, but I think it was in Romania. And there was a baptism there. And while they were, this pastor was doing the baptism and, uh, of a couple of people, uh, there was the LGBTQ uh, warriors who were there and surrounded it and became so disruptive that the police actually had to be called in. And the video picked it up at that place where the police were around. And, of course, they were still on the side uh, trying to be as disruptive as they possibly could. And yet, there was such composure, such joy, such faithfulness of this man of God and those who were being baptized, even in the face of such hostility, to simply remain consistent to conviction and keep their composure. We see many examples of this in defense of the gospel. Stephen, we're familiar with, in the face of angry leaders, kept his composure. He spoke sober words of truth, which were from the Spirit, and they could not contradict. And though he was stoned, he maintained his conviction to the end. Paul provides an example, if you'll remember in many cases, but when the angry mobs came to take him as they some stirred up trouble when he was in Jerusalem and in the temple area, and it became so violent that the centurion saw that and had to come down with his soldiers, rescue him, brought him uh, to a place of safety. And from there, what did Paul do? He asked to speak to the crowds. He kept his composure, he kept his conviction, he did not respond in anger at their hostility, though they were rebelling and, and treating him wrongly. He spoke to the crowd, he asked the centurion, may I, may I address them? And he spoke to them again, sober words of truth. The apostles did the same, they were taken and they were put before the leaders of their people. And what did they do? Though they were reprimanded wrongly, though they were given instructions that would have contradicted the will of God, though they were flogged and they were beaten, they maintained their composure. They did not respond with anger or insults against their leaders. They did not stir up some kind of rebellion. Again, they spoke soberly. They spoke words of truth. They simply said, you judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey God or whether it's right for us to obey men. You judge that for the self. They took their beating as God had ordained for them, and they went on rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ. And so it is. And this is the kind of attitude, essentially, that uh, Solomon is calling us to in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, of course, the greatest example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who 
having entrusted himself to the Father to endure whatever it was that it was designed and ordained for him before the foundation of the world to endure for our sin, kept his composure, never flustered, never rattled, never thrown off course, never confused, who always spoke words of sober truth, even in the face of the mightiest power of that time, essentially the state of Rome, and even knowing what it would cost him. He said to Pilate, before he was handed over, in response to Pilate's question about the charges brought against him, he said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The simple point is, is what Solomon is calling us to hear and, and the Holy Spirit through Solomon is simply to say that when we are confronted with a kind of hostility, when we are confronted with the foolishness of the world, when we are confronted with those in authority over us who respond to us with threatenings and with rage, maintain your composure. Don't lose your conviction. Don't compromise on the truth. Don't in any way lessen what is right and what you know to be right, but do so without anger and with the character of God. That's what he calls us to. And so that's the first observation about how we are to live. Secondly, he makes another observation that we could summarize in this way, in verses 5 through 8. And it's this, that wisdom is not always honored... Because power can reside in the hands of capricious and foolish rulers. That is to say, erratic, unstable, uncertain rulers who are prone to any kind of foolishness at any moment. Now, in one sense, this falls under what he's already been saying is that though God sits on the throne, his ways are unscrutable. And sometimes injustice seems to have the greater hand, even though in the end... We were always pointed to the confidence that justice will be met out rightly in the end. He says it will be better for the righteous in the end. It will be better for the wise in the end, if not in the moment. We can't expect there to be perfect righteousness and justice in this world. And one way that that's shown is that sometimes those who rise to power are the most wicked, the most foolish, the most inept, the most incompetent people who end up with the greatest amount of power and can do the greatest amount of harm. Unfortunately, in a fallen world, foolishness and power are often found together. Foolishness and power we wish could never find a harmony, and yet they often seem to be in union with one another. Human history and our nation's history is a testimony to the fact that the most competent and the most wise are not always the ones with the most power or political power. Sometimes the foolish and the most incompetent are. We see this constantly. And this is what he says. There is an evil I have seen in verse 5 under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Verse 6, folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. The foolish are exalted while those who should be honored are humbled is the idea here. Now, there is a sense in which wisdom and folly are observed in relation to the practical matters of life. And there, there is a sense in which the, uh, in some ways, maybe the initial or supervisual uh, first glance is that he's speaking wisdom merely as the ability to manipulate and direct circumstances and, and how to work the world, as it were, and how to work the system, as it were, to achieve your own ends. But that's not the vantage point that Scripture speaks from. 
Solomon is writing as the king of Israel. He is writing in the covenant scriptures of the Old Testament nation of Israel and the eternal scriptures of God. He's speaking from the position of covenant, of redemption, of revelation. So in that sense, folly and wisdom are always to be evaluated then from a biblical perspective, and even as it is here, from the standpoint of whether one is operating in the fear of God or outside of the fear of God, whether one is operating in line with God's righteous purposes or outside of those purposes in unrighteousness. And that's why he says in verse 5, there is an evil which I have seen. And you'll remember as he goes through, he often notes that the inconsistencies, the injustice, the inscrutability of this life is, falls under this rubric of evil. Because it's the things that happen in a fallen world. It's the things that happen not in a world in which sin is absent. There aren't the things that we would expect in the new heavens and the new earth and the, and the, the kingdom in which righteousness reigns under Christ. But they are the kind of inconsistencies and injustices and foolishness that, is, that happens under a world that ha- is under the influence of sin. That is under the influence, as the New Testament makes even more clear for us, of the God of this world, the evil one, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience and those whose minds are darkened and so forth. And so it is an evil, he says. This is an evil. This is a thing that is not as it should be. It is a thing that is not as God created it. And a thing that is not as it will be in the future, but it is a thing that is a reality now, and that is this, that evil is shown by foolishness holding power over even the righteous. So in this sense, again, the ultimate evidence of wisdom and folly is not the political skill of an individual to manipulate people and to accomplish their goals, but how much their rule and their goals as a leader are in line with God's righteous purposes for leaders and for nations and for civil authority and political power and kings and so forth. That's what marks one as either being foolish or righteous. There are many political savvy people who have a masterful technique and ability to manipulate the political process to their own ends who are described as scripture yet as a fool and as a fool. That's not when he's not talking about that kind of skill. He's talking about the kind of foolishness and wisdom that Mark 1 is being in line with God's purposes or outside, indeed, even in opposition to his purposes. So the problem here is that these are rulers who do not fear God who yet have power. And because they do not fear God and because they do not operate consistent with God's own moral principles built into the universe and God's own purposes for a nation and for a people, they produce, rather, the fruit of their rule is a disordered society. That's the idea. It's a disordered society. It's a society in which things are not as it should be, not as you would expect. So he says... Folly is exalted and is set in many exalted places. Rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. And other things, everything's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. It's disordered. It's not as it should be. Why? Because you have an incompetent ruler who is, does not fear God. So the normal expectations of a sane and moral society are turned upside down. Solomon said this earlier, and 
in the summary statement in the book of Proverbs, verse 14, or Proverbs chapter 14, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. A righteous ruler brings God's blessing, brings order, brings flourishing. It's a ruler who operates within God's intended design. And operating within God's intended design, it brings about good. But sin, when sin comes into a nation, it is a disgrace to a people. And ultimately, as he's going to show us in a bit, ultimately to the destruction of a people and to the destruction of a nation. It's been a common observation that many of the great nations of the world did not fall because of the great power of some external threat. It was because of the internal weakness of that nation itself, because of sin, because of greed, because of selfishness, because of misplaced priorities. It ended up in a sense, self-destructing, and had so weakened itself internally that an external force was then able to come in and destroy it. Nobody thought Rome could fall, and yet there it was, destroyed by barbarians, essentially. And so there it is, and we would be foolish to think that our nation is exempt from that. We act like that, but it is not the case. One said this, whenever a society celebrates immorality, perpetuates wrongful violence, punishes righteousness, denies the authority of God, and or persecutes his people, we may be sure that folly is in control. That foolishness is in control. That folly has been set in exalted places. And Janet, just to emphasize this in the Old Testament, you're familiar, particularly as you go through the book of uh, Chronicles and First and Second Kings, often a king was evaluated as being a good king or an evil king. The good or the evil had zero to do with the prosperity of the nation at that time in terms of economics or military strength or any of those things. It had everything to do with an evaluation from God's perspective on his faithfulness or his disobedience to the covenant. And therefore, the earthly success of a particular king who was evil, did not provide for the stability of the nation, but ultimately then became the means of God's judgment on that nation, on that people, on that tribe. And so it wasn't the earthly strength, it wasn't the the economic strength, it wasn't the political alliances that provide any kind of security, though they often thought it did, the evil kings, but it was their faithfulness to the covenant of whether they were good or evil, and their faithfulness to the covenant brought either, again, blessing or judgment from God. Now, it's worth camping here for just a bit because this is such an essential point. Let me turn just briefly to the book of Isaiah, to the Isaiah chapter 5. You're familiar with this passage. Isaiah has, it can be easily divided into two or three parts. The first part is this anticipation of the judgment to come as with many of the prophets there is this foundation that God is laying for the righteousness of his judgment there is a calling of the people back to covenant faithfulness a calling of the people back to the mosaic law a calling of the people back to rid themselves of idolatry and to serve God alone but there is the recognition as well in that That sin has come to have the pervasive influence among the nation. And that ultimately, as the prophets go on, there is particularly even in Isaiah, particularly up to verse 39 or chapter 39, this anticipation of the judgment that's going to come because the sin has run so deep within the leadership of the nation. So much so that he says 
At the beginning of Isaiah, as he begins his prophecy, a last sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Here, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. And then he goes on. Ending in verse 9 of that section, you will be like, unless the Lord of hosts had left us survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. Indeed, look at verse 10. He calls them, if you're there, of one, the rulers, he says, you are rulers of Sodom and give ear, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. These are the covenant people of God. And yet they had so strayed from covenant faithfulness that there was nothing left but for God's judgment to come upon them. The sickness was too deep to be healed. Yes, he said, come, let us reason together. He asked them to repent and he called them to repentance, but knew that that was indeed ultimately not going to be their fate because the sin had run so deep. He says in chapter 5, as he begins it, he gives this illustration of someone who planted a vineyard, who took great care of this vineyard, who put a wall around it, who did everything that should have been for the fruitfulness and the flourishing of this vineyard. And then the vine uh, dresser comes, the owner of the vineyard comes, expecting it to produce good fruit, to be flourishing, to be a fruitful vine. And he says, instead, when I expected it to produce good grapes, it produced worthless ones. And then he says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do to this vineyard. And as he declares the coming judgment to this vineyard because of their unfaithfulness, he describes the nature of their sin. Let me read in verse 18. He says, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let us make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and let us... And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. In other words, if putting God on the stand, prove yourself. Why, why should we be concerned about the warning of the prophets and so forth? Let God prove it to us if there is something he wants to say. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked. Any of this sound familiar? For a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry glass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossoms blow away as dust. Why? For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Everything was upside down. Everything was turned around. Those who should have been receiving justice because they were in the right were in fact the oppressed ones and had their rights removed. Those who should have been the leaders calling the nation to covenant faithfulness were in fact as wicked as the most wicked of any in the world outside of the covenant. Those who should have been 
calling the people back to call what is right, right, what is wrong, wrong, what is light, light, what is darkness, is darkness, what is bitter, bitter, and what is sweet, sweet, in fact, did just the opposite and turned everything upside down. And so that if you were a righteous Jew living in that time and one who was a true child of the covenant and knew the God of Israel, you found yourself in a society of insanity, of moral insanity, of spiritual insanity, where everything was turned upside down. One said this, coming on that section. Uh, let me read it to you. He says, in order to justify their own behavior, they must, in the most sophisticated reasonings possible, that their evil behavior is good, their darkness is light, and their bitterness is sweet. This attitude is the end result of refusal to admit the absolute authority of a revealed word. In other words, they had rejected the revelation of God in the covenant, the revelation of God through the prophets. For sin is not content to live alongside righteousness any more than disease will coexist with health. Sin can only be satisfied when righteousness is destroyed. If the ethical imperative is dependent upon human Human reason alone, that reason is no match for rampant self-interest. In fact, self-interest will press reason into service to justify its own behavior. That nails it on the head. Does that sound familiar? So the idea is that when the rulers of a nation are an increasingly godless people in which the, pres in which the presence and righteousness of God is ignored, then that is a disgrace to a nation and ultimately what will lead to its ruin. When folly is set in exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places, slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves in the land. Everything's upside down because the foolish are in control. Listen to this. Again, you're familiar with it, but Romans 1.28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Who do we have in exalted places in our own nation? We certainly can look at examples again through history and in scripture and through other countries in the world even now. But what about us? We don't live in those countries and we don't live at that time. We live where we are. We live here. We live in this place. We live in this country. We live under these rulers. What is our expectation to be? What would we expect? When the prophets spoke against the nation of Israel and they listed out their sins and they listed out the justification of God, the vindication of God for the judgment that he was going to bring against them. As he took the prophet Ezekiel, as he was preparing the nation for a judgment and he took them further and further into the courts of the temple, he took them into the inner court, he took them further and further into the temple, ultimately into the Holy of Holies, seeing the idolatry of the people as they turned their back on God. And he asked the prophet, am I not right to bring judgment? Should this, is this not a people who is prepared and ripe for the discipline and for the judgment of God? What would we say of our nation? I was reminded of a statistic this morning that since 1973, in America alone, this isn't even worldwide, but in America alone, over 60 million children have been killed in the room. Can you, can you fathom that? Over 60 million children, not only killed in the room, but in the most grotesque kind of ways, in the most greedy purposes for many. 
We live in a culture in which sexual insanity is promoted to such a degree that even the homosexuality of Romans 1, 26 through 27, where he says it is against nature, that has become passe in our culture. Now there's transgenderism, which left traditional homosexuality behind and is even at odds with it because of a moral insanity that refuses to have any connection with reality because of a determination to live according to its own dictates and ideology with such an ultimate sense of autonomy that none can touch it, not even the bare faces of genetics and anatomy and facts and the world around him. And yet, it is that exact ideology which is directing the very policies of our nation. Directing them, it's the tail wagging the dog because we let it. In the name of justice, all manner of injustice and violence is promoted. The very ideology which has no other end than to produce destruction and division has found its place of influence in the highest offices of the land, the most affluent corporations of our culture and our society. The entertainment, which is what our culture is drowned in in every way, Promotes not righteousness, but unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slandering, hating God, insolence, arrogance, boastfulness, all kinds of new evils, disobedience to parents. In fact, it's written into the very curriculum of some of our most popular states that the authority of the home needs to be undermined in order to remove every obstacle to a sexual agenda that wants complete mastery over the minds of the children. Every evil nation has known that's the way to do it. Everyone, get the minds of the children. That's the generation that's coming up. I heard a statistic not long ago, this will be generally true, but as you go back from our generation here all the way, what's the, I don't forget the name of the current generation, but the amount or the percentage of American citizens who have any kind of affiliation with any kind of religion, any kind of religious upbringing, I think now in the, the most recent was, is down to like 30%. That means over 70% of the nation doesn't even have a basic Sunday school kind of awareness of who God is. And these are the ones who are teaching in universities, rising to the highest political offices, controlling the most powerful corporations in our nation who are determining international policy, economic policy, moral policies. The place of Christianity, though we are never a covenant nation, but definitely under the influence of a Christian worldview from its inception and through most of its history. But now the place of Christianity, rather than holding a place of prominence and influence and esteem, has actually become the oddball, the oddity, when things used to have to justify themselves as being within some kind of moral sanity, now Christianity and the gospel and Christians themselves has to justify their own existence in any privilege, which in a godless world is going to have less and less weight, the argument. And so here it is, as Solomon warns, this is not a good situation to be in. I've seen under the sun an error that go, which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves in the land. Everything is upside down. In these cases, the wise will be dishonored, even persecuted, while the foolish continue to amass power, 
to the ruin of the people. Elections have consequences, but when we have elections in a nation that has elections, not only do they have consequences, but they reveal the soul of the people. Right? We put our leaders there. And so here it is, and here is his warning at the beginning, his acknowledgement that in a fallen world, everything is not as it should be, and often what should be is not. But I'm going to jump to the end here. We'll finish out the middle later. But as we come into the table, where does that lead us? Well, one, it leads us to certainly, as he said earlier, that doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean we throw our hands up in the air. It doesn't mean we lay down and die. It means we maintain our conviction. We work within the system that God has established. We fight for the causes that are right with composure and the character of God, not with rebellion and hatred. That's so hard for us as Americans. What's ingrained into us is to fight for our own rights. The idea of submission is anathema at the very core of our being to many of us. But he's not calling for that kind of outward rebellion. What he is saying, though, is that there is a need to fight for what is right. Do not lose your conviction. Do not compromise. And it is dangerous. There is the temptation to compromise. Even some trusted leaders and trusted Christian organizations have bowed to critical race theory. Gospel Coalition and others, many denominations, There is always that temptation in the name of compassion, in the name of love, in the name of understanding, in the name of cultural sensitivity that biblical truth is compromised and abandoned. But that doesn't leave us hopeless, does it? And that's what I want to just remind us of this morning. Because these things, while they are the expected consequences of living in a fallen world, point us always to the reminder that our hope is not in this world. And that even would have been the reminder that the readers originally of Ecclesiastes would have had to look to. What is the great hope of all of the Old Testament is one is coming. One is coming. A Messiah is coming. We read it this morning out of Isaiah chapter 9. The reality is that in the flow of life, rulers and governments will have ebbs and flows of the foolish and the wise, the good and the bad, the productive and the useless as far as leaders go. Overall, however, the tendency is always towards foolishness because of human sin. If anybody doubts the reality of the fallen of man, you just have to read a history book. That's always the tendency is towards foolishness, not towards what is good. The the numbers are far more on the side of foolish rulers than it is on righteous rulers, even within the history of Israel. However, for the believer, the one who knows God and trusts in his word, who has observed and paid attention to his faithfulness and to his promises, how he has always kept his word. That's why the Psalms always tell us to remember. Remember. Remember his deliverance. Remember when he delivered you. Remember when he's faithful to his word. Remember the promise. And, of course, we have a perspective that they didn't have. Of course, Solomon didn't have. And that is that the the promise, though shrouded in mystery, though not fully understand understood by the nation even when he did come, is that God kept his promise and the Messiah did come, not in a way that they thought, but that wasn't because of any lack of clarity on God's point. It was because of lack of confusion on their point. But he did come, 
He did keep his promise. And this all simply points to the increase then of our hope and the promise that as the Messiah came the first time, so he will come a second time to establish a kingdom that is holy and righteous. And interestingly, just as we think about even the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was David's son, who was David. David was the king to whom God made a promise, of which Solomon was the expected first instance and fulfillment of it. I will give you a son. The son will rule over a kingdom. His kingdom will be enduring. It will be everlasting. It will be certain and stable. And certainly when Solomon rose to fame and rose to power and began his life, it looked like this may then, in fact, be the answer. But it wasn't because Solomon sinned. Because Solomon sinned and the other part of that prophecy that looked at all of the intervening time also noted that the sons that came from him would be disciplined for their sin and their failure. And so it was with Solomon. We'll look at that later. Solomon failed, and in the end, so did every Davidic king to one level or another. Every good king was still, even in the revelation of Scripture, with all the commendations for their faithfulness, is marred by sin. Is marred by sin. That's why the hope was alive. That's why even in the latter prophets, they were looking forward to David who would rule over them. David who would come, meaning the one promised to David, the Messiah. That was their hope. That was their hope. That was why they could look at the continual cycle of failure and realize that that wasn't the end of the story. Because man wasn't in control of the story. God is. God was and God is. And so what a glorious reality when the, when the weak and the needy cried out to the Messiah as he walked in the sand in the land of Israel and they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, you are the promised one. You are the one who would come. You are the one who would be pierced for our transgression. They didn't understand that then, but the righteous would, that you are the one who would be scourged for our healing. You are the one who would offer yourself as a guilt offering that we might be forgiven and that you, he, might see his offspring. So what was the hope? Well, let me tell you this, that the hope of Israel is our hope as well. Those of us who are part of the new covenant. Listen, this was read earlier. But what does the, what does the, the reality of a sin-cursed world groaning point us to? The reality that it won't always be that way. Listen. A child will be born to us. He says this in Isaiah 9. He says this in the midst of the judgment that's coming. He says this in the midst of a nation that has rulers like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says this to a nation whose head is sick. He says this to a nation in whom light is called dar- or darkness and darkness is called light. Sweet is called bitter and bitter is called sweet. It's to that people that he says this to those who would hear. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, forevermore, 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isn't that a glorious promise? When everything crumbled around them, when judgment was the certain expectation of that, of the generation to come, when there was no answer because wickedness had risen to the very highest places of power in the nation, God reminds them, this is not the end of the story. There is a government coming in which justice will be executed with perfect wisdom, perfect truthfulness. There is one coming on whom the spirit of the Lord will rest, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, a ruler who will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips and will slay the wicked will be gone. And righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. And a cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw with the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy. For all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for his people, and his resting pace will be glorious. The curse will be removed. The curse will be removed. The effects of sin will be mitigated and removed. And one who is righteous, one who is just, will rule. Beloved, that's our king. That's our king. It doesn't matter what nation we live in. That's the king who sits over the earth. That's the king who created all things. That's the king who's returning in the glory of the Father with his angels. The message to us in light of the foolishness that so often reigns over us is honor Christ under the authority he has placed you and trust in Christ to bring about his righteous kingdom and his righteous rule in his own time. Be faithful to his covenant Be faithful to him who has accomplished all things on your behalf. And beloved, that is the very picture that God has given us in his table. That's the picture that he's given us, is that he has accomplished for us a redemption, that he has accomplished every requirement of the covenant for us, the new covenant. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us. He is our righteousness. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is everything And he's done it for us. There is no possibility that we can derail his plans. He is accomplishing them and he will accomplish them. And as we come to the table, as we come to the table, we are reminded of this great reality. Let us be encouraged. Let us be encouraged. Let us be encouraged that whatever the chaos is around us, it's not chaos before God. Whatever wickedness might seem to have the power, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He will establish his son on his throne and he will reign. And nothing threatens God. That's laughable. And so we come to him needing his strength. And as we take these elements, let us remember afresh the glory of the covenant. Let us remember afresh the glory of our Savior and our Lord who is even right now communing with his people through his spirit.
Let us commit ourselves to live faithfully to him, to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Let us commit ourselves again to walk in holiness and righteousness and truth and love as the body of Christ. And let us be renewed and refreshed in the grace in which we stand before him. So I'll give you just a few moments uh, just to pray, just a, just a few moments, and then I'll, I'll pray and we'll take the elements together. If there is, as you pray, just let me remind you, if there is, if there is sin in your life, we don't come to the table worthy in ourselves. We come to the table reminding that our worthiness is in Christ, that our hope is in Christ. We, if we come with sincere contrition over our sin, sincere desire to walk righteously with him, though stumble we will, if we come to him to sincerely seek to follow him, he is that gentle savior in whom we find rest and whose yoke we take and he helps us bear. And so if you are outside of Christ, however, and Christianity is a religion, Christianity is what good people do on Sundays and it's not Christ who is the foundation of your life, then the table is not for you. This is not a saving ordinance. There's no grace through it. It is exercised by those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And so let the elements pass and ask that he might show you his glory and save you. So I'll give you just a few moments to pray and then I'll open this up in a word of prayer. I mean, I'll pray. My Father, we thank you for your word and always looking at sin is, is, a, is a reality because we live in it and we certainly have the vestiges of it still in our own heart, even we who are regenerate and we who know you, who are in union with Christ, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit and yet we battle and we say, wretched man that I am, but we also say, thanks be to God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and we thank you that you have extended to us in great love, in great mercy, in great kindness yourself. Your love is so infinite. It is so perfect in Christ. It is so full, full. Lord, we can hardly comprehend it. It seems too unreal to be true, and yet it is. And you remind us that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus how we delight in that love, how we long to experience it more fully, how we long to be in your presence. Keep us looking forward always to that great day. Raise our eyes by faith from particularly those who are discouraged and downtrodden and weary in the battle. Raise our eyes from this earth upward to Christ to see our Savior there who is even now making intercession for us who is exercising compassion towards us according to the will of the Father. To that end we pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, there was a reminder of these great truths. God has given us something so simplistic and, or simple in its reality, bread and wine ultimately or a wafer and juice. But it is not the elements themselves that have power. It is not the elements themselves who, that confer grace. It is not anything miraculous or wonderful about these things. It is what Christ has infused them with, the meaning that he has infused them with, the picture that he has painted for us and given to us to remember his grace. That is what is powerful to our hearts. 
We take these by faith. We do this by faith. We do this in remembrance of him. Again, there's no special grace in it, but there is by faith an experience of the gospel, in some sense, even a refreshing reminder of the presence of Christ in them because of the new covenant. So he said, Paul did, or as we are commanded to take this together, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, betrayed by his own sovereign plan, by his submission to the Father's will for us, knowing he was, all things had been given back, that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father after he washed the disciples' feet, knowing that Judas was going that night to betray him, to fulfill the purpose for which he came, which is to die for our sin. And the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread with his disciples. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's together eat. And then in a way that they didn't understand fully at the time, indeed, there was much confusion. Even that very night, the gospel writers tell us that they were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, the very night of his betrayal. How patient is our Lord with us, right? How patient he is with us. How compassionate and kind and gentle and humble of heart he is towards us. And so he took the cup after supper and he's saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we do so, as we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. John will come and close us in a hymn.